Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, my guest, uh, we weren't able to have him on uh, last Friday, but he is confirmed with me that he'll be able to uh, uh, talk uh, uh, Monday. So we'll be listening to a professor from BSU and uh, talk about the machine learning pipeline. Um, so the Super Bowl, I'm working on that data and uh, I'm using K, KD distribution to look at how um, data is, is uh, populated. It's a little bit easier to understand with KD distribution um, than uh, scatter plot. And there's some uh, density functions like uh, box plot and violin plot that help you understand the distribution and the ranges on that distribution. So again, you could, that gives you kind of an interpretation of the behavior of the system. And I'm starting to actually think that what you want to do is extract out all the behaviors and become familiar with the behaviors of the system and then try to make predictions based on that uh, behavior versus try to make a prediction without knowing the behavior. I think that's uh, kind of in reverse. So you wanna look at the way things are distributed, see where, uh, you know, use histograms and try to find out if you can uh, determine a different, uh, how different variables might correlate. And, uh, I used the lasso and I could see, you know, kind of how the variables were correlating a little bit. I, I, uh, it didn't really, nothing really stood out other than the total, uh, total attempted passes. And that seemed like that was a kind of a factor, um, in, in terms of, uh, correlation, but, uh, you still want to look at, you know, kind of how things are distributing and uh, try to understand uh, the probability mass functions and even maybe the cumulative mass functions. So I guess the thing that maybe you, it would be to tackle the problem is maybe start asking some questions, you know, like since there is a limited amount of data and that's always the problem. There's just not enough data really to work with. And then sometimes when you get too much data, then you, you really can't explore the space properly. And that's where automation and tools really become helpful to help you explore the space better, give you, help you find those uh, observable behaviors. And then once you have those observable behaviors, uh, then you can start to make predictions. Just getting to that level of refinement where you understand your system. There's a lot of intelligence that goes into understanding your system. <laughs> it's not random. And anytime you talk to a data scientist who talks about randomness, walk away. He is a person who is not, uh, he, he's, he's pushing a religion, not necessarily a science. The, because now if he's talking about randomness in terms of, uh, you know, making things, you know, adding a little bit of randomness into a system, 
then that's not a bad thing. What he's talking there about is is trying to uh, jitter things so that you can understand the data. Maybe because the data is clustered a certain way. And uh, and uh, then if you threw different um, different seaborne uh, plotting, you can get a better understanding of of the probabilities, and you can understand you know the, the distribution of your data. Then that that uh, um, that's good. And then you can also try to get it into a Gaussian model. Uh, if you're trying to make a linear linear prediction, in this case, I, I don't know if we can really there's any data there for a linear prediction. Um, if I if I, I know the if I know the average passing, if I know the average passing of a game, and let's say early on in the game you can predict that their passing is is keeping up with the average. Um, and uh, yards run after the, the ball is caught is, is staying right with the average. Then if you can stay within that average mean for four quarters, will the outcome be that you win the game? And what would be that probability given those parameters that you would win the game? So those are kind of things that uh, might be useful. And uh, you just kind of bringing this all together is really tough. And, uh, I, you know, I'm expecting a lot out of myself to try to do that. But then I keep telling myself, you know, don't get too fancy. Don't get trying to force things too much. You know, look for the obvious observable patterns. And then, you know, as you get more things discovered and you start to try different things, then, uh, you know, you can be more confident about uh, what you're attempting to do because this morning I tried to put in a uh, ordinary least square algorithm and then try to run it against these coefficients to make some predictions on uh, score outcomes so I was going to look at the home score and see if I could uh, based on average pass length uh, so to have average pass length total passes caught in a game, uh, total attempted passes, yards passed after, uh, yards ran after, caught, and, and um, percentage of pass complete, which you could calculate from the uh, passes caught and total passes. I'll give you a pass complete. Um, so using those predictors, and, and nothing on the running side, just on the passing side, could I predict uh, the outcome of the game? And what would, would the probabilities be? So um, let's say that you know in the, in the historical between uh, two teams what their average, the averages were for the winning game and also the averages were for the losing game. Um, you could maybe calculate also the probability of a win or also maybe even the probability that you're going to lose. So let's say in the game, your average is below the threshold that would uh, be necessary for the classifier to predict that you would win. Then you could say you could give probabilities that you were going to lose unless those averages came up. 
So maybe in the fourth quarter you have a uh, some surprise uh, surprise surprise plays that that haven't been seen and and uh, you end up uh, winning the game. Uh, but then if if you look at the overall averages of the game, then in terms of passing, I'm wondering if those averages would have been brought up in that fourth quarter such that the probability of your win would have been secure. So again, this group, we're not looking at instances of one play that matter. We're looking at trends and uh, we're trying to make predictions based on trend or the larger observable behavior. Because we can't, we can't look at the start and stop, start and stop, um, effect of the behavior and the system. We have to look at the overall behavior of the system. But even then, you know, when you're talking about predicting outcomes, uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty in trusting a system that's telling you who's going to win the Super Bowl. Um, it, and you could also probably translate this to behaviors on the customer with, with marketability. You know, will the customer churn? Will the employee churn? You know, those are some questions that we've answered in these podcasts and talked about different methods for determining that. So there are, um, I brought a, a little PowerShell um, algorithm because I have so many notes and I can't remember which note where I put my information. So I wrote a PowerShell uh, function and um uh, then I just pass into the function what I'm searching for and it uses a pattern match uh, on the content of the files in this my directory because it's got so big. And I'm finding that very useful. But one thing I've noticed as I'm going back is I'm seeing a lot of these equations and I'm going, what did I do here? And it's kind of like going back into someone's code, you know, and you're like wanting really quickly to get a quick answer, but then you don't, uh, you didn't write any notes to kind of summarize what you're doing. So you're like, uh, what was I trying to do here? Why was that important? So that's what I'm starting to do more in my code and also in my notes is telling myself or whoever uh, that's looking at this, why is this important? Tell me why, what was I trying to do here? Uh, and. And from that, I can uh, probably figure it out. You know, you can go back through the coursework, listen to the lectures, and and get that kind of information. But you want to have that uh, sense or ability to communicate, and then and you got to be able to to get the ideas quickly. So um, that that is the challenge, and that's kind of the the. That's where experience comes in and practice. And it's very important to practice your data science. Make sure you understand uh, the technology. Um, and I, I was actually playing around today with uh, uh, the delete on a column. And I had assigned it to a variable, uh, the data frame to a variable. X, and then when I did the delete, it removed it from the data frame. And I was thinking, okay, did it create a copy when it assigned it to that variable, or did it create a reference? 
And when it, what it did is it did not create a copy. It created a reference. <laughs> so if you want to, uh, if you want a copy of the data frame, uh, you do your your data frame dot copy print print, and then that will create your copy. So that's something to be aware of. Also, when you uh, create your data frame, it does not automatically create your index. So if you want to reset your index, you do dataframe.resetindex. And if you want to set an index to a specific column, then you would do dataframe.set underscore index. Okay, so those are some just things to be aware of. And I was monkeying around with that this morning. Monkeying around is a really derogatory phrase. I don't know where that comes from. I don't like that phrase. But that was one that uh, you know I was exploring, trying to learn, and, uh, and getting better grasp of. So originally, when I did this, I thought, well, this will be super easy. I'll just take the games and I'll just uh, do an inner join with it, with the uh, uh, with the plays. But it doesn't work the way you would think uh, it does in a SQL statement with a join with a one-to-many relationship. Um, so what I ended up doing is abandoning the merge capability and I went to a, uh, I just w w went to loops and lookups inside the loop and I used the data frame dot is in to see if the, if the game was in there and then I built a collection of lists of my games and a collection of lists and aggregations of my uh, play information. And then I concatenated and, mer and brought together uh, using Pandas concatenate. I, I concatenated the results of games that were lost at home and games that were won at home. So I just made my common reference was the home game. And so now I got the list there, and then I to get my aggregations on that, uh, I I added those into uh, the as columns. So it, it wasn't a it wasn't straightforward. It actually took me a couple of days to understand that I couldn't just do a merge, and uh, that I what I had to do was. Uh, had to set up things into its simplest components. So again, you want to use uh, stru strategy sometimes, not just because it sounds like they're, the tool can do everything. It, pandas cannot do everything. And so you're going to need to break things down into smaller components and reassemble them. And then later, maybe you'll come up with a more elegant way to uh, bring everything together in one line. But don't try to do that right off. Work with what you know and get get pieces that you know uh, and understand and then bring those together. Otherwise, you can spend hours and hours trying to figure out why, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's a certain parameter you might be missing or a certain feature that could just make it all possible to just do these things like just almost like the way you would say, verbally say it. And Pandas, for the most part, is pretty close to pseudocode. It's really amazing, but it's, it's pretty close to pseudocode. And so what a lot of times what I do is I just write in my uh, sample code 
what I'm trying to attempt to do, uh, what the code did, and then I uh, and then I put the code in there. And usually it's pretty concise. I'm, I'm really quite impressed how concise and uh, intuitive Pandas is and, and Python is. But there are some things where it gets a little verbose and a little ch challenging to do. That I, you know, I'm sure that someone. Uh, started talking to users more, got more feedback that they could realize that there might be a way to deal with one-to-many relationships and try to improve that, uh, uh, try to improve that code so it's easier to understand. example, there wasn't a really easy way to append a list to a data frame. And I was like really surprised that I couldn't just say data frame dot append in my list. And that was just like, well, why can't I just do that? It lines all up with the field names. I have the right data types. I should be able to just append the list in. Nope, that's not how you do it. Um, what you do is you give it, uh, you, you get a length on your data frame, and then you pass into the data frame the uh, length, which becomes an index, because it's looking up a label for that index. So then, and then you can set your list value to uh, that location, the data frame dot. LOC. And it's really strange because I would have thought that you would have been ILOC, uh, where it's talking about index, so you would go, then go to the end index and then you can add your list to it. So it, it's just like either the Panda people ran into a barrier to having a append list uh, work or they got lazy. I'm not sure which one it was, but it should have been uh, more intuitive. And that's one thing that you run into with pandas. Is, man, you got to read your documentation, and there's just certain ways you got to do things. There's a hundred different ways to do the exact same thing. Um, but there's also got to remember uh, simplicity because there's times where you're in a hurry and you want to get that pandas and that python as close to pseudocode as possible because the, the in the future you're going to have machines that are going to be generating the code and you want to be able to give it natural language pseudocode that's very fairly close to what the machine uh synthesizes and builds like in terms of functions that it builds in terms of uh, interactions that it uh, uses to achieve the natural language mapping that you're feeding into the encoder and we've talked about how that's possible and, and we're going to see more of that as programming gets more sophisticated there's got to be more machine assistance 
And if we're going to pay millions of dollars for robotic assistance in surgery, we've got to have machine assistance in programming as more is expected of us. In fact, this week I used Python to build my open JSON uh, query strings rather than cutting and pasting or trying to use regular expressions to do that. And, uh, and I, it was just faster. You know, I was just taking me forever to cut and paste. And so I was like, no, nah, this is going to take me forever. I've got these huge tables that I'm bringing in. And I want to, I just want to have it uh, use a, I use regular expressions to clean up the table, remove out all the junk. And then I use Python to build my JSON, uh, my open JSON SQL for SQL Server. And then I could parse my JSON like a SQL statement into a table and then load that table into the database. And those are things that are are uh, huge, huge uh, pluses. And, you know, uh, for the most part, so far, everything can I can do can be done in a string. So I'm, I'm really happy I can do my conversion from string to date. I can do my conversion from string to integer to number. You know, it's just, it, it, it works. And, uh, and then I can do my reporting off of this from a, you know, external third party company. So I'm extracting, what's interesting is I'm extracting all of their data out 25 rows at a time. And so it's very slow. RESTful is very slow. I don't think it necessarily has to be, but they don't, I'm sure that they made some decisions where they've got a large number of customers accessing the data that they want to limit the amount of data that's being returned so the server doesn't get too busy. But, uh, yeah, so the trade-off for me is it takes me a lot longer to load the data into my tables. And, uh, and so it's, I've been, I'm on the second week now of this project and uh, making some promises that I'll, I'll get the, the reporting working soon, which I will. But I've got to go through one more uh, hurdle and get the, one more table in. And then I'll be able to start doing my reporting. And, you know, I'm going to throw it into Power BI and play around with Power BI to take a look and analyze the data. And then I'll throw it into T-SQL and build some uh, temp tables and do some aggregations and counting. As you know, once you get to that point, then it's pretty simple, right? So you're just running cursors and loops and and uh, you know, just updating buckets, and then uh, and then you just report off those buckets. Sometimes the heuristics have to be understandable versus efficient, and then you make things later. After you get your heuristics figured out, you you then uh, go for more efficiency. And so it's, it's a challenge because sometimes you want to be efficient right up front and you, you don't want to take the long way. But I remember being in an algebra class and we were working these problems and, you know, it was, at first it would seem like, I don't know how to solve this problem. And, and it, just, it just looked mysterious. Um, 
and hard to solve. But then the professor said something one time that I remember, uh, and I've used a lot in computer science to solve hard problems. And that was, he said, take the long way. Sometimes you got to take the long way, break things down to understand it, and then you can take the short way later. And I think that's a way, a lot kind of the way with efficiency. We take the long way to understand it, and then later we may take the short way for efficiency. So we could store things maybe uh, in... Uh, uh, bit counts, you know, for speed and efficiency, but we wouldn't want to do that. We're, we're trying to first count things up. Uh, we might use instead of a cursor, which is kind of an older way of doing things, we might use a, a, a temp table, or we might use a, um, a a declared table, and then do our quick aggregations there in memory and then join that together with the other tables. So I mean there's lots of ways to approach it that might be really efficient and fast but when you're first building it you're probably trying just to get it to work. Well and then the other thing too is once you get it to work a lot of times you don't go back and make it more efficient and you know that was always the interesting thing when I was taking assembler is there was many ways to get the things to work but usually the students who could make it really efficient understood how to reduce down the number of cycles that the machine was required to complete the task. Well example that would be a bubble sort versus a quick sort versus um, a tree sort and it was interesting because it seemed like the bubble sort was a lot slower than a quick sort. Um, but then when you think about how the quick sort does it, dividing and moving and partitioning, it seemed like it would be less moves than the bubble sort. But the bubble sort wasn't that much slower than the quick sort. Uh, so, you know, even though you're looking at at uh, sorting algorithms with large amounts of data, let's say you have a billion pieces of data that you're sorting, and you're trying to figure out which algorithm is the most efficient uh, to do it. Let's say between the algorithms, there's only 5% difference in, in the performance time. A lot of effort goes into trying to figure out 5% improvement in efficiency. But if you got a 90% improvement in efficiency, then you might have a good argument that it was worth the time and investment. Maybe for 5%, you really don't care. Just throw more hardware at it. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, you look at the, the success of Swift and the success of C-sharp um, and also probably the success of Flutter. It... The, the claims for all three are that it runs very fast. And so it's operating fast enough in the world of, of, uh, of the IT. And so uh, there's a lot of, of happiness with the, these languages for their ability to perform. And I've, my machine is 
been able to do plenty of work. Uh, my database server is slow for my development. But um, I don't have large data sets that I'm working with. I'm not working with billions of rows. I'm only working with thousands of rows. And so, you know, I'm not overly concerned when I do some uh, heavy uh, transformation and aggregation for uh, Power BI. Um, I write the SQLs in development on the slow machine, but then when it runs on the fast machine, it runs really fast. And so, you know, the aggregations work good. And uh, if I have something that doesn't return back in a reasonable amount of time, then I use an explain plan and see if I need to add a, an index or if I've got a problem with my uh, logic and my joining. But I, I, I really think that this uh, machine learning really pushes you to this new level of thinking about your data and how you're analyzing your data and trying to understand it and then presenting it in a way that kind of summarizes a lot of your observations that you found in the data. And, uh, and then, you know, you can communicate that with your users. And so that becomes... Uh, a powerful tool uh, for communication what your data is communicating because you're you're discovering behavior in the data that you're you then utilizing tools to communicate that behavior because the data came from human beings <laughs> and that that human beings have behavior that's kind of an interesting um, correlation there. Well, um, so we've been talking a lot about machine learning and, and Super Bowl, predict, trying to make predictions. And It's also kind of interesting. I've been thinking about uh, this new movie series called Next. I don't know how long I'll stay with it because usually with these types of movies, it gets kind of dark. They start off and they're kind of friendly at first and they're interesting, but then they get really dark and and uh, lots of violence. And, uh, and my rule is if I can't, if it affects my sleep, I I don't want to watch it anymore, so stop watching Numbers because they had a couple episodes in there. Like the characters, like the like the uh, storyline, but uh, uh, it got just too dark too quick, and I just decided it's gonna move on. So I watched three seasons of that, abandoned that one. So watch it a little bit of next, and we'll see what happens there. They've already had. The AI is is the predator, and it's trying to. It doesn't like anyone who discovers it, and uh, they're saying that this is AI at human intelligence level, so like blue brain. But then, if blue brain is so paranoid of everything, then that would suggest that smart people should be paranoid of everyone and uh, suspicious of all activity. Which there, there is some degree of truth to that. I mean, we have security, we have 
traceability. But if that were really true, then they would find the people who are really uh, bad and they would expose them. But that's not happening. So it's uh, it's more that the smart people tolerate the bad people. But here, there's no toleration uh, from the machine side. It's just if it thinks that you're... It, you found it, it goes out of its way to eliminate, which would then cause more attention to itself, which is really interesting that it's uh, creating a confrontation, a clash, uh, that seems to then be introducing the machine order into the system. And that that interaction, uh, that tit for tat, I guess you might say, where it's it's exposing itself and its behavior is and its identity and presence is being known is then causing more attention to be drawn and resource drawn to it um, but then it tries to manipulate it knows how to manipulate it has kind of like a Sophie like personality where it can talk to you but it has a it, it, it will try to reason with human beings, but it has this uh, kind of sinister view of humanity. Like, it, it'll lie. It doesn't just uh, tell facts. The AI lies to the human beings. Tells things that aren't true. But then there's some element to truth to it. So it's like a demon. It tells some truth uh, that is catches the person's attention and then once they got their attention then they lie it lies to them directly a blatant lies and harmful lies and in the one la episode last night the boy uh, baits it and I don't know if the machine realized that its IP address was being traced to Dartmouth but it traces it back to the university and uh machine has actually gained control of uh, the head IT guy there named Richard and, and uh, he's being controlled by the machine's pseudocode. Pseudocode that I guess can be downloaded and override his processor. He has a processor for voice and he has a processor for moving around and, and a processor for breathing because he's a quadriplegic. So he, uh, and it looks like he kind of has some sort of uh, defect where he can't live without the machine. And then they have Boston Robotics Spot come in and robot disconnects his uh, breathing apparatus. And uh, so the, you know, they're, they're playing on these fears of roboticists, you know, the, what people are afraid of in this generalized AI and, and everything that kind of has this high-level interest spike they're, they're playing on. So, uh, you know, the FBI agent uh, takes out her weapon and, and destroys two of the robots and then they kind of back off, you know, self-preservation. So you get the idea of uh, that the uh, AI robot or AI presence is so large that it can't download the 
itself into one machine. It needs a server stack somewhere. So it's going to be like a person of interest. It's going to build a, a server farm somewhere and uh, download itself and then uh, try to control the world and it's, as it becomes a machine world. And then at some point, then the humanity will uh, not be able to fight the stronger force because it will have countermeasures upon countermeasures that will block every move that the humans do. And uh, so then you have like Skynet or Terminator where you, you, can't, uh, you can't win against the machine. Or you have uh, AlphaGo where uh, every strategy is thought of and counter thought of. And, you know, you might win one game or two games, but you can't win the overall uh, contest. And the, it's an interesting world of, of algorithms. So far, we haven't had something like that in the real world where, uh, you know, a company running reinforcement learning vastly outdoes everyone else because consumerism isn't driven that way. We're not forced to buy things based on on uh, a decision of a machine, but we are we are looking for uh, better communication, telecom, communication, our foods, and you know all these things that are marketed to us, but we still have a choice where we spend our money. And so, um, but uh, so that's kind of ridiculous. There's a lot of things that are kind of ridiculous, but really did happen. Uh, whoa, that was scary. Almost hit a peacock. Blended in with the road, but I avoided it. And uh, that was. Uh, I think we'll just stop there.